0: Welcome back to another season of Mixed Messages. This time around, we're going to do a father-son sessions. My youngest son and profound prophet, Michael Gibran Sky Burr, is here with us today. You've heard him before in a number of other episodes, both on Mixed Messages and Bars Closed, but this season is dedicated to he and I, and if his brother wants to join us, we hope to just have some more candid conversations about life, all unscripted. No real goals defined, no notes on the table, no idea where it's going. Here we are, G-Man. Hey, hey. (laughs) All right, we live, baby. All right. So where are we starting? You know, I thought it'd be kind of fun just since we kick it off, just playing around with past, present, and future at the same time. Yeah. So one of my thoughts was, let's take ourselves back to our first memories. And I've got my first memories of you. Can you think about what some of your earliest memories are as a child?
1: I've wondered about this with people kind of my age group and whether or not I'm any similar or I've had this thing and I noticed my brother has it too, where I actually kind of have steadily started to lose some of my earliest memories as time goes on. And I wondered if part of it was, you know, all the games and all the TV and all the information like... You know, there's so much information that I've had access to as my preteens into my adulthood that, you know, I just wonder if I didn't really focus, cherish, or rely on my memories as much. And I just had so much new information that I do kind of have some blind spots. I have noticed that when I look at photos, suddenly a photo that I see becomes a memory. So some of my memories are also... You know, memories that get relived or recaptured or re-realized from photos, or some memories are the photos themselves. But I think my earliest comes from photos, actually. Like all of my earliest memories, I remember because of the photos. But I'm able to think of the photo first, and then kind of then reimagine the environment and the memory that I was in.
0: That's fascinating because I know in my generation, growing up, right, we didn't have as much media. When I grew up, it was, you know, an aluminum foil on top of antennas. They were trying to get the station in. There was no cable yet kind of stuff, right? So we were forced, I think, probably to, or we knew nothing else but to rely on our memories to kind of entertain our brain and to we probably place more value on them. Where, like you say, that database was maybe not as important to you guys because you were constantly getting new information. And so in and out.
1: Right, exactly. So it was like those memories were really one-lived. And maybe that's part of why the pictures do kind of help me re-remember them is because I've also noticed that outside of social media and like the shallow, you know, selfie pictures, and then we do have a lot of artists as well who do take, you know, that media seriously. But it does feel like, at least for my own personal experience, I haven't really been a big picture taker. I haven't really been a big like, oh, we're at Disneyland, so we got to take pictures. That's not my first thought, like, ever. My first thought is never really to take pictures.
0: You're actually more open about it now. For a while, though, you were like, you're going to take a picture, no, Dad, and then, no, don't post that one, or, you know, at a certain phase, right? When you had more voice in the matter. <laughs>
1: right. <laughs> Although,
0: alternatively, I took a lot of pictures growing up of you guys. Yeah. And shot a lot of video. Yeah. So maybe start there. Like, if you can't think of something that is just straight up out of your own memory data bank, what are some of the earliest pictures of Gigi? G-Man, Gibran, that come to mind?
1: Well, so those are going to be the baby ones then. I remember a picture of me laying down and I had that kind of little bracelet that I think might have said like G on it or Gibran on it. And I remember that bracelet and I think I still had it for a while. And I remember holding it in my hand. So that kind of photo is one of those more physical memories because I think back then... You're just so embodied, you're just so suddenly a part of the world and figuring out sounds and things that, you know, maybe at that time I wasn't consciously thinking like, oh, here's this bracelet of the shape of this thing. You just feel it. You see it, you feel it, you hear it as is. There's no filter, there's no frame of understanding. So that would be the earliest memories I can think of are those memories where I can remember it through pictures but they're not framed by anything. I never really understood them as a memory, as a picture to my brain, in a sense. Like nowadays, so much meditation is to bring you back in your presence and bring you back into just being free and and witnessing the world freely. And part of that is because we have begun to try and understand the world around us. And part of that is we consistently can try to, and maybe I have, and I speak from experience, I can't speak for everybody, but I imagine there's a lot of, of memories that are actually kind of framed. There are a lot of memories that kind of aren't really as in the moment. And then they actually lose a lot of the value of being in touch with other senses because you're just visualizing it and understanding it and remembering it in the frame of your own frame of life, your own perspective.
0: Yeah. Well, I can tell you my... um, So I get to have the father version of my earliest memory of you. And then I'll maybe share my earliest memory that I can remember in my life. But my earliest memory of you, obviously, was the day you were born. And I think for any parent, you know, that's a very pretty significant day, right? You kind of feel like... If there is something spiritual in the world, it's happening when life is being born, you know? And so your birth was so different than your brother's. Your mom had decided to do the epidural right out of the gates, where before with her brother Gabriel, she waited till the last minute. She kind of thought she could maybe do a natural birth because her mother had done natural births, And she also was nervous to have her child in presence of her mother. So your grandma D wasn't there for... Gabriel's birth and so it was just her and I in the room at the doctors or in this case you know there were other people in the room and Grandma Dee was there and so I remember coming in and and it was just quiet it was calm there was no adrenaline and there was a lot of laughter and she was going through her contractions and they were just simply showing up on a machine and then the doctor came in and checked to see how far she was dilated and it was like time to have a baby and I'm skipping ahead in time but you know essentially and he's like okay this is it so let's get everybody in here and let's let's get this guy into the world and which was you know march 12th and and so then everybody kind of got into place and she was you know really happy she really talked a lot about it that she had a really beautiful time experiencing you in the womb her emotions were different and you know she just it was just a really powerful time for her so she was very joyful and she's a baby maker she's a strong woman you know athletic etc and so next thing you know they're like okay go ahead and give us your first push and she gave the first push and the doctor was like, whoa, 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 let's bring that push volume down to like a two out of a 10, right? This guy's <laughs> going to fly across the room, right? And so then, uh, so then he's like, let's try this a couple more times. And it was just real easy. And you had really bright blue eyes at the time. And you kind of came out and I started talking to you through the whole process. And boom, you were right there in my arms, cut the umbilical cord, walked over to the table, doctors do the inspections and they wanted to keep poking you. And I think at that time I was really protective. And I was like, okay, we're not poking him anymore. We're going to give him some time to just relax and be here. And that was my earliest memory of you, which is you. You wouldn't remember that. <laughs> 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 and then we stayed in the hospital for several days. And and you had maybe had some stomach stuff or whatever. You were rather grumpy. But my voice you know, was something that brought you some ease. And at that time, there was still a lot of chaos going on. And your mother's in my marriage, right? And so that being the case, you know, we were literally divorced six months or, you know, separated six months after you were born. And then you were thrown into that whole version of your life that, you know, has kind of helped shape you for who you are today in whatever ways. But you had this beautiful day of birth and everything seemed joyful and peaceful. And and then, as they say, maybe a part of where a lot of those memories get blocked out is you then were kind of thrown into trauma, mm. right? And that was a pretty traumatic period for us. Now, my earliest memories, I have this one very specific one that I find so interesting. I think I was two, what I remember. And I was sitting at my father's mother's home, my grandma Monty. And I was back in the stairs right outside of the kitchen with my cousin Vicky, who was very adoring to me. And we were just sitting on the stairs and she stepped up for a minute to like run into the other room to go get something. And she's such a protector. And when she had gone to the other room, I had just kind of like a little wobbly. I just rolled off the side of the stairs and fell quite a ways and landed, cracked my head open on the concrete floor. Right. And then so that was one. But I remember like the awesomeness of being on the stairs for some reason. And I didn't really have a picture of this. Right. So. And maybe I remembered it through stories later, you know, or maybe I actually remembered it. I can't, you know, I can't say for certain. And it's funny how the, the trauma versions are what we kind of maybe remember more than not, but which is always sad for a parent, right? They want you to remember all of the really happy stuff, and then there's these tra- the Disneyland, the Disneyland, right? What What do you mean you don't remember? That you, we went to Disneyland. You remember that me? Cost when, me
1: like two thousand. Exactly. You remember
0: how much I was so frustrated about that for like so long? Every time I kept asking, you, "What do you mean you don't remember? We did this and we did that." So another one I had was my stepfather's house and my mom had already left my dad. And I think I was like four and it was Christmas Eve. And I was very hyper and excited. They had a nice house. It was his, my stepfather's parents' house and everything was just kind of, you know, one of those nice picture perfect evenings. And his mother was in the kitchen making a whole tray of coffee. They had these swinging doors open and close. And so I ended up running into the kitchen to go like give her a hug and she was walking out with a tray of coffee, and I slammed into her, and she dumped the whole tray of hot coffee over my head. And so all of a sudden, I had all these first and second degree burns, (laughs) and Christmas Eve went from this picture-purpose glorious moment to me in the hospital, and, and then, you know, burn victim. And then, you know, my mom there trying to help me, so. But that's like two and four years old, you know? So I've not done any studies on what is common for the earliest memories that people have. But those were a couple of mine. So I guess I re-asked the question again from hearing that from me is, can you jog your brain to go back to something that you genuinely remember at an earliest, earliest age?
1: When I, uh, when I broke the swing set. Okay. Um, I think it might have been at the lake house. And I remember um, <laughs> I was playing on the swing, uh, which was actually a hammock, playing on it, and it just like kind of broke off the tree. I kind of just ran away cause I like freaked out and you actually never got mad at me about it. And I feel like at the time, like I was kind of maybe both a little surprised, but also just kind of like, Oh, I don't want to get in trouble. Maybe I got away with it. Yeah. And then life goes on and I continued on. But you know, looking back on it, it is just like one of those things where it's like, wow, I didn't get a beating from it not that you would have (laughs) but that's how a lot of people think about you know when they get in trouble like verbal or or not it's like i didn't get disciplined because of breaking the swing set you know and i really felt bad about it
0: i remember that and you know what you were about four Mm -hmm. so that brings us back to that kind of how early and i could see you really remembering that that was at the lake hobbs house right outside of tampa florida and you loved that hammock and um seva was always really out there with you on that hammock and on that note right like i was a young father and i barked a lot you know like i you know like i was overly overly stressed and at that time i was a single father and so i just can see through the years as we've talked about it of like me getting mad right i never felt like i was mad from the inside but i know that and i'm just naturally that way anyway i'm very passionate very loud very dramatic And so I didn't know that that would have such an impact on you from a young child growing up, but it did. You know, we talk about another one that was really impacting on you was the time that I spanked you. Mm. Do you remember that? Yeah. (laughs) You do? Yeah. So are you okay with talking about it for a minute? Do you want to leave that one alone? That's
1: probably the only one that I'm a little like. Yeah, you're like, "Uh, do we have to go there? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) Okay, well. Do you remember me spanking? Well, here's another one. Okay. Here's another one. All right.
1: I remember when you, uh, when basically we're at the beach and, and maybe I was messing around or something, or maybe I was just doing whatever. And you really were so serious about telling me that you were going to make me wear a diaper (laughs) if I didn't act up. What an asshole. And like, (laughs) I feel like you even had like a box in like the trunk or something like, uh, Like, I really believed you. I was like, (laughs) I was like, (laughs) no. Yeah,
0: (laughs) you did. And you were, you were so like, no. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, those memories. That was, I think, when we went to the drumming circles. Mm. We used to go to the drumming circles every Sunday down in. um, That
1: sounds about. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Right. I think maybe I
1: like run around, you know. Yeah.
0: And I, you know, I have such fond memories of those times of like, you know, those Sunday drives. And we had Van. Uh, yeah. This big conversion van. It was a youth group van that ended up. You know, they ended up letting go, but it was pretty fancy. Had lots of cool head jacks and TVs and things. So I felt like super dad with Van. Yeah. But I do remember that. I remember that. I'm going <laughs> to make you wear a diaper. And I think you know this is funny because I've talked about this before of like having not grown up with a father and uh, I had a stepfather and a few, but didn't really have a relationship with my real dad. So when I got married to your mom i really didn't have a reference of what a healthy marriage looked like or and you know we got married because she got pregnant and and that doesn't mean that it was the only reason but that's why we got reason married for that timing Mm -hmm. and that fast Mm -hmm. and so i always said that like when we started when we started our family we didn't know how to be a husband and wife or father or mother we were trying to like pick tv shows that we could relate to or or even do it from parents that we knew or our parents, if we had references, there was no version of ourselves that came into it of this is how I'm going to parent. And that's something that I'm excited to talk to you a little bit more about later. But so, you know, I can see now looking back whereby my version of parenting was this combination of TV shows and a variety of other stuff that ultimately identified what I thought I was supposed to be versus what I think I would be now. Okay, so then there's that one. There's the so we have the beach with the divers. Let's keep playing with memories. What else? What else do you got? Do you remember when Judy first came into your life? Do you have a memory of it or no?
1: Kind of. When it comes to Judy, it, it kind of combines a little bit. Like I remember being a kid and I, I remember her being in, in our lives and I remember small little memories, but I don't really remember when she first showed up or anything outside of, of anything super direct. Cause I think for the most part it was, you know, she was just kind of there. Like I was so young that she was there and that's how it was. And that was just life. So that was Davis Island
0: and you were two. So we've, we've got, you don't remember much before four, mm-hmm. right? You've got some memories at four, five, six, seven. What comes to mind? Chuck E. Cheese. Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> there it is. Yeah. Okay.
1: You know, we'd go to Chuck E. Cheese and they had like the pop schools and stuff. And I don't really remember a lot of the rides and stuff. I just remember the kind of place. Yeah.
0: You know? Yeah. Yeah. That was a real, as a father, there was a couple of places that I could take you for sanity for myself. And that was youth group on the church on a <laughs> Sunday, you know, yeah. where you guys would get checked into this youth group thing. And I would have like a free babysitter yeah. or I could go to Chuck E. Cheese and, drink beer and watch you guys run around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and your brother Gabriel loved that one ride. So there was all of these black and white pictures. And you might remember some of that just from the black and white pictures of you guys on one of the rides.
1: Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I know there was actually one picture of, of the popsicle as well. There was a picture of us just like sitting down eating a popsicle, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> what is your earliest memory of me as a father? Hmm. Like you mentioned one with, you know, getting in trouble, right? Right. What else do you have?
1: Well, I really don't want to have to reference photos with that because there is a lot of, of photo memories, but I think it is a lake house. The lake house. It is definitely the lake house. Yeah.
0: There was a lot going on there. Yeah. You know, we moved to this beautiful property on, up in Northern Tampa and lots of cypress trees, like a hundred cypress trees and property and... You know, a neat little house and we were jumping in the lake and there was just a lot of recreation and stuff. Well, and you had your birthday I, there's party.
1: a good memory. Uh-huh. Um, I remember in the pool, you know, we had like a little pool at the time and I remember having my Spider-Man tube and I would basically twirl my legs underneath it and it would allow me to turn like rotationally, like counterclockwise, like really, really fast. And I, I just remember you also kind of hanging out in the pool and stuff.
0: So that was right after the lake house. Oh, okay. And that's why it's fun, because we've never talked about this stuff. So yeah. this is, you know, just for those who are listening, I mean, these are conversations we've never had. So that was when we moved the, the the house right after the lake house. It wasn't far away. That's when Gina Kim came into our lives. And Judy had now come back and was there with Giselle. And so that was the pool house. That's what we used to call it at that time. Yeah. And one of my favorite memories of that place, you know, I had several, but um, one of my favorite memories that I was kind of proud of, which is so funny, was I came home one time and uh, you guys had friends over and you were all in the pool and the pool was a shit show. <laughs> it was like, there were like Fritos and bags of chips and there was like a can of pop floating. And this was like a pool that was like, it's a nice house, nicest house I'd ever been in. And, you know, I was always kind of trying to level up and provide more. That was something that I took from some father story somewhere and it's like, okay, I'm going to be provider. and give more and make nicer and things like that. And so I come in and I did my, one of my, what is going on here? You know? And, you know, and it wasn't like I was really, again, like I didn't feel mad, but I sounded mad. And all I remember is like your friends practically peed themselves and jumped up and like ran out of the house Mm -hmm. and you and your brother were running after them going, it's okay. We really, he he just, you know, he's just yelling, but you know, he's he's not mean or something like that. (laughs) You know, you were like trying to keep them there and I felt like so overwhelmingly proud that I could be so loud and boastful and f- temporarily frustrated. And it didn't traumatize you guys. It didn't shock <laughs> you. So I would realized that I had now yelled enough that you guys were kind of not so impacted by it.
1: Yeah. Right. And yeah. so
0: that was like a first moment where I'm like, yeah, I'm toughing up my kids. You know, they can handle it. <laughs> yeah, look at these little squirrely kids. Who, you know What is their dad doing? You know? yeah. I mean, nobody yells at them for making a mess like this. Yeah. And you guys jumped right up and helped me clean the pool out. And it was all back to normal and then kind of pouted because your friends were gone. Yeah. Fun. And then where do you think we should go from here?
1: Well, I do want to get into some cooler conversation. You know, memories is fun, but that's what they are is memories, right? right? right. So I want to create some new ones, cool. but I'm not totally sure... Where to go. So we're kind of talking about the past and we're talking about memories. So you said kind of past, present, future. Mm-hmm. All right. So we have a past of, of lake house, pool house, all these things, all this life, some time in New York. You know, there was a lot of love there, but there was a lot of complicated stuff too, I think. You know, I was a pretty soft guy and I think I was actually able to better handle your passion before I had ego. You know, I think when I was a kid, you know, maybe certain times like the spanking maybe was like a bit more extreme for me. But for the most part, like I think at least I was able to just go through that as a normal kid would and accept you for who you were and and deal with it. But once I kind of got into that kind of elementary, you know, middle school kind of area, that's where you start hearing other kids talking about their deadbeat dads and you know, and then you have to deal with people in your life that maybe, you know, don't have the best opinion of your dad. And then, you know, there's like all these different outside forces that starts to kind of complicate and interfere with the relationship. And at the time, you really start to develop an ego. And it's not ego in the sense of, I'm better than anybody. No, it's the sense of identity. Ego consciousness is identity. It's this idea that we are something in our life experiences or more than that has allowed us to, I guess, be somebody and represent something and create this kind of image of of who we are, you know, whether or not that is true or not true.
0: And it gives you some autonomy, I would imagine. Right. Right. Now it's like, you know, I'm me, not my dad's or my mom's, right? Right.
1: right. So, yeah. So you get that kind of that identity. So when you start to kind of remember times when your dad, you know, was maybe a little bit angry and then all of a sudden you're getting all this information about all these things and then there was aspects where where you weren't really able to kind of pitch in cuz on some aspects maybe you didn't even know that some of that information was being portrayed and on other aspects, you know, there was so much parts of you knowing your truth and knowing your side and not really probably wanting to imagine that there would have been any kind of misinterpretation or any kind of lie of sorts with that. True so it's like I'm me and my dad yelled at me a lot when I was a kid and that's not cool and people are telling me that he's like not here with me taking care of me and you know so there was kind of like a lot of confusion I think and a lot of confusion that started to be believed as reality because of identity, because at that time I'm finding my confidence in who I am. So it's easier to be like, yeah, my dad's maybe not cool, whatever. Like, you know, I don't really have a dad, you know, and, and really that was more other people saying that. And it wasn't totally maybe where I would have thought of it if it was just completely left alone on my own, but in combination of, finding confidence it kind of became reality It became the belief system
0: yeah now that's strong it's strong speak so it was a you know a little just leading up to that time so that was more park city and this is when your mom had now come back in the picture in florida we got to do dual custody for a while and then there was an oil spill in florida and my mom and her really concerned about the oil spill and what that might do to your brother's spectrum stuff right Right. and just our health
1: and there was a lot of coughing i have real memories not picture memories of of genuinely like coughing a lot sure no
0: i mean it's it was a real hazard you know i'm not suggesting it wasn't but and so then the agreement was is that your mom would go ahead and take you guys full time to park city right and then therefore now for the first time in my life i'd become a a summer christmas dad and then i then moved to new york and so like you said then now you are in park city with your mom dad's somewhere else always been passionate about my work and so there was this kind of all this other people talking to you about your dad cares about your his work more than you and you've got this new identity and there's the james dean factor i had that too where that's my generation but like it's kind of cool to be pissed off at one of your parents Right. You know, right. kinda of get that ego. It kinda of helps you identify your identity more.
1: Right. And that's what I mean with identity. It worked in commendum with me trying to figure out who I am and confidence in myself. And we have that almost as a human mentality of, of a common enemy. You know, I feel like a lot of people can find identity in, in an enemy. Big time. Which kinda of sucks, but you know. Yeah. It happens. Yeah,
0: and then I remember you in that started to become the first time I saw angry G and your mom would only call me if I was supposed to kind of like lay the discipline. discipline.
1: And she would use you as that parent of like, don't make me call your father, and she kind of, yeah.
0: And then I would take that seriously, right? And I would come in and be like, wait a minute, this is not okay, right? And that's what was so fascinating for me learning later was this kind of absence of, of memories and relationship where like now you're in this other place, the dynamics have changed, i was really beating myself up for being so far away but i was also you know realizing this is probably the best thing for all of us as a family but that didn't really change things for you and so then i remember just feeling like sad that you couldn't remember this father that you had before and so it almost was like skipping forward on the record where you're experiencing you know the album from the fourth song and I'm asking a child to have context from the previous three songs. Like, listen to the album together. And you're like, right. you're like, there's no other three songs. Right. There's just you, the dick dad, who's not here. And I'm upset and angry about it. Right. And then you were angry at your brother as well at that time, I think. And this kind of brings up, you know, like you said, as we're moving past present future moments. I want to say this was kind of one of the angriest times I've seen you in your life. I don't know how much you remember that, but it's when you actually first started showing your physicality too because mm-hmm. you, your brother, he loves you dearly and loved you dearly, but his nature was sometimes to be physical with you and bang you over the head with things, and, and you took it so well. You were, like, assaulted, but you, you were not very defensive, and now for the first time with this new identity, you were like, I could beat you up. Mm-hmm. I remember you saying something like that to him. Like, don't keep doing this, because now I'm strong enough that I can beat you up.
1: Yeah, because I was always... Um... You know, I had a little bit of baby fat originally and um Gabriel's kind of one of those skinnier body types where I kind of had a little bit more of a of a beefier build, you know. So there there really was kind of that mentality there for a minute there of and really like I guess it, it was just an angry time. Like I was just angry and I think a lot of it was meant to happen simply by closure that would later eventually happen, you know, like we're here talking, so obviously we're cool, yeah, and, yeah. you know? And, and it was meant to be as it was in the storyline, but it, it's not pretty, and it's not me. A lot of that was other people. A lot of that was just so much BS.
0: Outside influences that were feeding a young impressionable mind. Right. And that's, I'm sure, true. I'm so many people can relate to that in their family stories where there has been an adversary in the family who's kind of helped divide people in the family. And that's a pretty common story, I think. And I remember the exact time you told me that it was going on, which was much later. It's when we back we were back down in Florida. And we'll skip to that, but I think what I relate to that time period with you is is that, you know, you are so soft and you are very sensitive and you are very compassionate and you are very empathetic and you are, you know, you got all this cool softer side to you and frankly I did and do too and so it surprises me about myself and it surprised me about you of how some of us who are the most soft-hearted can actually be the most pissed off yeah like we're really pissed off
1: and i think that comes from the idea that we're genuine and it's not to discount anybody else or anything right but if you take away identity if you take away all these things people that make a character out of being mad are just that. A character out of being mad. That's part of their identity. So it's not anything super, super, super real most of the time. But someone whose identity is off of being calm and being collected and being love and all these things, when they are representing an energy or frequency or a place of anger, you know it's real. And that's why it comes across as way more passionate, way more loud, way more serious is because something or someone or whatever poked the calm bear to the extreme because you have to get to a different extreme to be angry than someone has to get to if they're just angry all the time.
0: That's so well said. Yeah, and it can come across scarier because it's real feelings. Mm-hmm. This isn't a shtick. Right. Like you said, it's not a character. It's not an act. I right. like, you know, this person is really pissed, wounded, has been hurt. And this is the way that they know how to emotionally reply to those feelings. Wow. So then, of course, for a parent, like you feel like you have both responsibility to help that person get out of that, maybe hold them accountable to it, not know how to do anything with it. Can you see yourself as a parent now? Where are you at now?
1: Kind of. I can't totally... To go on the full level of already a parent, I haven't had that brain click of like, oh man, you know, like there's so much, you know, as you said, like birth is one of the most spiritual things, right? Mm -hmm. So there's there's so much layers to it, but the more that I ultimately understand who I want to be and find peace within myself and become dignified as a person and not from outside forces, not from identity, not from media, not from movies. You said that your experience was you didn't really have any points of references. So for you, it was like you had to go to all these outside forces. But part of Christ consciousness and part of, for some of us that choose God and believe in God and and live with God, there is so much more that goes on in terms of just kind of naturally becoming who you're meant to be and who you choose to be. And when you choose to be righteous, when you choose to be good, when you choose to trust in in God, and God to me is, is a big part of that, but even just the normal act of choosing to be righteous, choosing to be loving, choosing to be joy, allows a much healthier development of how do you see the world, what are your belief systems, what are your belief systems based off of, and thus what are your actions? And then those all kind of come together and then create an identity. Because in our natural state, it's arguable whether or not we have an identity in our most natural state. But in this kind of society where we have to create an identity to kind of fit into the into the box of reality that has been kind of created for the sake of, of sanity and community and all the aspects of that, you come from the right place and you're going to have a much better understanding of what you believe in, who you are, who you're going to be, and then you're just going to be that. So in that context, I feel like I am way, way more equipped to actually know how to raise a child without books. I feel confident in my ability to understand human behavior, to understand human emotion, to understand, you know, what the perspective would be of... Someone who's a child who on one level just kind of came into the world and is first figuring things out and then starts to kind of understand that they can have an identity and they can be somebody and the kind of confidence that comes with that of like, hey, I'm figuring out who I am and I'm actually a person. And that happens at way of a younger age than really the thing is, is yes, kids aren't going to fully understand the complexities of the world. But that doesn't mean that they're mindless. It doesn't mean that they don't actually have constructive thoughts. And that's a disconnect, I think, with a lot of people and how they're raising their kids is they are almost raising them like baby animals when they already actually are well endowed enough to make decisions on their own. So even at like four years old, five years old, That's where you have to really start trusting in your child is one major thing, but then also helping them understand morals, understanding the deeper concepts so that you can help them make good decisions rather than making every decision for them or pushing them to make your decisions. You can't control someone once they actually feel like they are someone. You can only just guide them. So there's a lot of, of things that I understand now and a lot of places of love that I can come from that would equip me to be a good dad.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, I feel like I can relate to that now at the age of 50 as a grandfather, that I've come into a place of my own character, my own authentic character. And that's kind of what you're saying is that you know, as you develop your character and your principles, that it becomes more natural for you to know what kind of loving father you want to be or could be. Right, And I know, at least for me, you know, I, but I think this could be true for different generations, is a lot of parents, we kind of looked at our children as a grade report for ourselves. How well are we doing with getting these kids along, and how does that reflect on us? There was a lot more selfishness to that versus that generosity that you're talking about in acknowledging this little human and how you want to help them navigate the world as their caretaker. Right. If I could look back and say, boy, I wish I would have had some things together. I've I've spent a lot of my life trying not to have regrets, and it's odd how we can even go through, I would call probably this crazy year that we've been through and spiritual awakening and and stuff that we've both shared. My version of it is it was kind of a midlife crisis, except for it got me in the right place (laughs) versus me spilling and going in the wrong place, you know. But I look back, and I've always thought, God, I wish I could have been softer. I wish I would have been more mindful. I wish I would have been more principled in my faith. I probably, and I wish the divorce would have never happened. But I wish these things would have happened so that I could have been a better father. So it's refreshing to hear that you're kind of walking in next generation with a bigger toolkit,
1: right? And you know, one thing that I want to bring to the table as well is I have a better toolkit because of my decisions, my actions, because of what God has allowed for me. But in the grand scheme of things, in the sense that there's a divine plan and that there is, you know, that everything serves a purpose, there was a purpose in who you were at the time and and the way that you were at the time. And I don't know how that would have fit into even where I'm at now. But if you were any different, the timeline would have totally changed. And I'm happy with who I am. You know, mm-hmm. and I think that there can be a lot of healing and understanding, you know, in the human experience, we experience light and dark to kind of have like this soul school of who we're going to be and, and our priorities. And, you know, this is like the biggest lifestyle of experience, like assuming that there is a life after this, which is what I believe, and that there is a life before this, which is what I believe. So you think about it as, what does this whole world stand for? What is the whole purpose of all this? And if you can really look at it that way, there is purpose in traumas. There is purpose in complicated family relationships. There is purpose in all these things because everything is being worked and being guided for the most part, as long as you come from a place of truth and love and genuinity, that's the separation is when you choose to try and affect things because of ego or your reality or you're overly ungenuine. I feel like that's the only time that that kind of natural unfolding might become interfered with. But as long as you are genuinely trying to live your life and genuinely trying to be the best you can be, everything serves a purpose. Everything unfolds the way it's supposed to. And there, Things that we would connotate as being a negative thing or things worth having regrets most of the time aren't. You know, you didn't kill anybody. You didn't do anything really dark. You know, like you just tried to be the best father you could and you tried to be the best you you could. What more can anything or anyone ask for? You know what I'm saying? If I was still pissed off about it, that would just make me selfish at that point. Now knowing the truth and how knowing all the things. And, and really part of the reason why we're so okay now is because we finally got the truth. You finally got the truth of what was happening and all the forces that were trying to make me hate my dad. And maybe where that became romanticized and dramaticized, like, yeah, I'm a guy without a dad, you know, and then you conveyed to me your feelings and your emotions and where you came from and your perspective. And ultimately, you were there when I really needed it. You were there at the most important parts and that overrides everything. There are a few moments as a father that will successfully override every single moment of any kind of fault you would have ever had as a father. And that's one of the things is is when we become so stuck on these simple mistakes, these simple issues that were there for a purpose, we are emotionally unavailable from those key moments, those important moments where you really show up and be there and do it. And really, it was the fact that during our greatest spiritual awakening, which I had my own version of that, by the way, like, my father, my brother and I were all this like big clan, but that didn't mean that we were interfering or forcing or sharing or, I mean, we were sharing what we were going through, but there wasn't any sense that you put your shit on me. There was none of that. But we were able to really counsel together and in the ways that I really needed you at that time, you were there. And and that's reflective of the meaning of a father but also the meaning of, of life. You have to go through these things, you have to suffer through these things, and a lot of times suffering is made up. Suffering a lot of times is created from those doubts, from those fears, from those nervous reactions to, oh my gosh, I said this thing that made it awkward, did that ruin everything? No, there's this concept that people don't want things to be awkward. You don't want to make things awkward? Well, the kid also doesn't want things to be awkward deep down. Nobody wants anything outside of what's comfortable and lovely and normal. And sometimes abnormal in the right ways, but comfortable and lovely and safe. What I'm leveling with that is you can't look as fatherhood as this checkpoint of, you know, checking these boxes and whether or not you always made everything right and how many times you screwed up because we're humans. Humanity is duality. Humanity is duality. We live constantly in light and in darkness and love and in fear. That's what this experience is about. It's soul school. It's to push us to our limits of our identities and then our choices. Do we choose God? Do we choose love? Do we choose life or do we get so stuck in ourselves and our identities and our regrets that we become lost
0: strong speaking it's interesting as we you know kind of go into the identity thing i think one thing that i i want to remind myself of in this and you is there was also this side of you that once you kind of got through all that anger i remember we had come out of trinidad we went down to trinidad and had our experience down there right and there was a tipping point there where you were you kind of came out of that For a variety of reasons, not just us or our experience there, but just that you were now going to start reading. You wanted to get your grades up. You wanted to be less angry. You had goals. You were softer again. But what was funny is after that, you you would get all these compliments, whether you'd be with your mom or me of like, oh my God, you know, he's such a great kid. And you were very offended when people would compliment your parents about you being a great kid. (laughs) You were like, I'm a great kid because I'm a great kid. Yeah. You really at some point made a real distinction, and you even did it again today, which I'm really proud of, is that you're like, yeah, you know, parents can take some credit for some things, but at the end of the day, I'm me because I've chosen to be me. Yeah. How do you feel about that? I mean, obviously relate to it because that's what you've been saying, but do you remember saying that or feeling that? I do.
1: I remember it very strongly because it was my truth. And I've had to really grow up and give my parents more love and credit because. Part of Christ consciousness is respecting your elders, respecting the people that came before you and the ways that they've worked in your life and the way that they've been used and utilized to essentially help you on your journey. So I've I've had to really give and really try to find the balance of credit to where my parents did raise me. I mean, I, I really do have to admit that for a lot of my growing up, I would owe a lot of the love that I have now to a lot of the love I was given. And I think the distinction is is the moment that you're old enough, like I said, whether it's five or six, or like way earlier than people think, but the moment when you can make decisions is the distinction. That's the distinction. And that's part of why some children end up kind of really Making bad decisions, even when they're a kid and their parents are like, Oh, I can't do anything about it. I'm really trying. What did I mess up on? And it's like, Well, maybe in some aspects you didn't help, but in other aspects, it's not their fault as much. The kids made the decisions. And what really matters is, in my opinion, what really is raising is when you first come into the world, when it's a baby in those first crucial years where you have no idea how to filter the world. You have no idea how to make decisions. You have no moral compass. You have nothing. You are. And it's a beautiful thing because that is the purest piece of humanity. That is the purest place that we are now understanding through meditation and and other physical practices You know, in a lot of ways, we're trying to get some of that back. We're trying to become present again, to become realized again, to become people of nature, to not become so lost in our delusions and our creations because we are creators, but we create things in our mind to live by. And that's a dangerous thing. But going back to it, I think raising is that early stage where it's all energy. It's all energy feelings when you're that baby when you're that young all you have is what's around you and, and your experience and it's important to create an environment where maybe the child doesn't feel like they just popped into some world of destruction as much as it's hard for parents you know when they're divorced or they're struggling or in a low place in their lives a baby feels that A baby feels their presence of their parents and the presence of the environment that they're in on almost overload compared to what we feel because they have no filter.
0: Yeah, no context, no filter, all energy. Yeah, this is the world as I know it for the first time.
1: So being love and, you know, from the videos you would show, you know, you guys would be playing music all the time and you were so loving and so good. And that lasts a lifetime those first few years last a lifetime
0: that's that's great that's really great to hear here today and i love loving just you expressing that and feeling that again and it, i know that there's you know textbooks out there of these influential times but i just really related with you on that one but i also really relate to you on the fact of when that kind of passes and now a child is in the phase where they're now a decision maker of their own they've kind of garnered those first okay, now I've got my footing. This is the world of which I live in. Here's my circumstances, parents, and home life, and otherwise. And now I'm little me, and I'm thinking that a lot more now because I love little people now, right? Like I mean, I've always have, but I mean like more so than ever. As I get older, I like little humans more than I like big humans. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean like, and I'd like to spend more time volunteering to help and or you know if you guys do end up having children or whatever like I never thought I would ever hear myself saying this but like I'm very excited about the idea of being a grandfather and I obviously know that I'm kind of also building the character for myself of what does that person look like to these new little humans how would I participate what's important to me to be to them and for the you know to offer them provide them etc and so this kind of first wave of them coming into the world versus when they become humans and watching them become who they're going to become with or without you i think a lot of parents are just kind of blown away by like seeing the humans that they've created unfold into who they are naturally or who they're deciding to become you know and and like you said some decide that they want to have a chip on their shoulder and they have no reason well see I, i
1: do want to add one thing yeah okay please I feel like, and I just got that kind of visual and that kind of energy of of what you're saying in that moment, and I think that's the moment that you can see the soul, right? That's the moment where you can see that these beings are more than just animals. If we were just animals, then maybe that whole conditioning aspect of things would last the entire time. But where does this sudden presence come from? Where does this sudden kind of switch of... I'm me now, I'm me now, thank you. But it's my life, my experience, my matrix. And I think that that to me, if I saw that in my kid, would almost be like one of the most physical proofs of character, of soul, of not just a personality that comes from conditioning, but like an actual being, like an actual person.
0: Yeah, it reminds me of another podcast that I did here on Mixed Messages called Gift Versus Burden. And as a parent, you know, as life is, can be very difficult at times, your your child's radical personality and what they want to do can be perceived as a gift or a burden. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we can either laugh at it and be like, oh, it's so cute that they're just being such a little asshole right now and, yeah. and that they're so proud of themselves <laughs> for that you know what i mean like how neat is that it feels like you know the more well-adjusted you are like, you know you can do that or the more the less stress you have in your life and i think most people can but if you're kind of stressed out and wired out and kind of needing things to stay in the box and hoping that your kids stay in the box and when they start expressing these this kind of radical independence that's one of the interesting choices as an adult we get to make is Do I see this as a gift and can I nurture it or do I see this as a burden? Get back in your place, boy.
1: I feel like, you know, you brought up how books talk about these kinds of sensitive times, right? And I put a lot on the baby stage because that is where you have the most influence and environment and energy and, and really what that child is going to be mostly attracted to and what they're going to know. And that's the important thing is, is it's not that anybody necessarily likes bad energy, but if that's all they receive as a child, then that's kind of what they know the most or they know the most well since the beginning.
0: That's not cool, you know? Like I think about that a lot with, you know, the generation above me, fathers were not affectionate. And so it was one of the things that I was trying to reverse. I'm just naturally more affectionate anyway, but I believe that I felt like physical touch, affection... Petting, holding things created an intimacy and a trust. And do you agree with that? Do you think affection is a thing in the development of a human being?
1: Yeah. If again, you know, and and I was actually going to also tie that into what we were talking about with the burden versus the gift as well. But to answer that first, I think affection has to do with trusting other people and trusting the world not only is kind of the environment that you're first put into the environment that you kind of will recognize as your earliest energy and your earliest example of of what you're used to, what you know, but at the same time, by trusting in somebody else, you can better trust in the world. And that's a better place to live from because even if there is a lot of heartbreak and there is a lot of terrible people out there, you at least have a foundation of knowing the affection, knowing the love, knowing the goodness, knowing the light. And if you don't have that, then that really impairs your ability to go out in the world and, and handle those, those harsh realities. You know, Because I guess what I'm just trying to say is, let's say you handle your first world life really harsh reality. Do you want to handle that knowing love, knowing affection, Knowing that good exists, or the unfortunate scenario where some people just don't know good exists, and then it's just a place of constant darkness from the beginning.
0: Do you feel complete with that thought? I know you had a double thought there that you want so to bring up. I Why don't you do the other one?
1: I feel complete with that thought, but I was also going to bring up you brought up sensitive age frames, and I talked a lot about how the beginning stage is the most influential. But I realized that the point that you brought up about, you know, bless or burden, that is a sensitive stage as well. And it does tie into affection and trust and all these things. That's almost like, let's say you're a kid and you finally have this identity and you're finally making choices. That's kind of your first support system. You're alive and you're making choices and you're choosing your way. Are you supported or not? And that makes that another sensitive time. but. You know, as I was saying before, it's not a sensitive time in the sense of telling your child what they should or shouldn't be doing or trying to control your child like it used to be. It's now a sensitive time of, to your child, do their parents love them as they are? And I feel like as much as you want to conceptualize loving your child and conceptualize what you might do for your child out of your love, As soon as you're not accepting your child for who they are, that love is no longer your child's and is now yours and in your identity. You cannot love your child and not accept your child. That's not how love works because then it's all about you in that scenario. And that's not supposed to sting too bad. I just mean that as a big concept realization. Like These are things that I would love for other people to really try and awaken to and just take a deep breath and recognize that humans aren't as fragile in a sense. We are in the sense of physicality, emotional, mental, all the things, but we each have spirits. And we each have our own journeys and our own reasons for being here. And we each are going to grow into who we are. And the most healthy, I think in terms of any parent to child, is to know when the click happens, to know the difference between really being there, really nurturing versus just having to take a step back and go, you know what? It's all going to be how it's going to be. At least I can love my kid and accept them for who they are.
0: And I'm hearing that as also you have a choice as a parent to either shepherd that person's independence or resist it back to the gift versus burden, right? right? And what you're saying is that when they hit that point where they're now, get a, they get to express themselves and they get to make these decisions, that's another shaping point if the parent is resisting it and tell them they don't have the right to have that versus if they kind of remove obstacles out of the way and help shepherd that independence. Exactly. That's that experience of love and acceptance. And that's an intimate form by just the allowance, not the physical touch, not the affection, It's, but it's an affection by allowance, by respect, right. I would right. say, right? I respect right. you, little seven-year-old, right? right? You know, right. I respect your strong opinion on that matter.
1: And you'll find that kids believe their parents intuitively, right? And identity can often, you know, kind of make it not seem like that because in a lot of ways... I mean, the world is a harsh world. And there's a lot of things, and there is a lot of things. It's also a beautiful world. But confidence, you're supposed to have confidence when you're first figuring out who the crap you are. So, of course, you're going to come off as if you like don't believe that you need your parents anymore. Be too bold. You know? Be too but radical. Right? all the adults that really feel like burdens to the world... I wonder how many of their parents treated them like they were a burden. Kids intuitively still respect and love and listen to their parents at the end of the day, even if that means, you know, that they are still going to test the waters a little bit and and choose experience and choose their decisions and all those things and get in trouble. And really, I guess it comes down to things are still going to happen, but how deep does it have to go? Is it going to become a trauma that influences them for possibly the rest of their life or a huge portion of it, or are you going to be as loving and accepting? And there's going to be some bumps, but your child's still going to to listen to you and care for you and respect you as an elder because you respect them as a child.
0: Heard, yeah. And you know, so one of the reasons why I, I launched mixed messages was to kind of create a relationship around you know mate partnership. And so I feel like everything you just said applies to a mate, not just a parent-child relationship. You want to speak on that for a second? I mean, like that kind of unconditional love, that kind of stewardship of somebody else's independence and identity as a young woman, young man, middle-aged man, middle-aged woman. Is there similarities that you see there as well or no?
1: Yes and no. I think that I was mostly focused on on a certain subject. I think that there are parallels in any scenario of relationships and what I'm talking about, simply because everything that I'm talking about comes from character. And as I explained before, I only know these things because of character, because of, to me, Christ consciousness, love, joy, respect, honesty, you know, unity, all the things, right? So anyway, moving past that, I think when it comes to relationships, it becomes even more complicated, only because with a child, the question is, okay, they are going to face the world. How can I help them while they're pure? In a relationship, you've already got the baggage of an adult lifetime. Most of the time, if we're talking about the complicated, like let's say, adult relationships, like in 30s or something.
0: No, great to clarify this. Yeah.
1: And one thing is, is I think women kind of have begun to poke a little bit But I think that it's within rights because I think a lot of men have kind of taken advantage of women and have not lived up to their potential.
0: And largely due to their upbringing.
1: Right, because there are a lot of broken men. And I think that there is a sense where, to your point, there's acceptance of accepting the man and, and guiding and helping. And I think some women maybe kind of try and guide and try and help, but they come across as a make wrong. And that's definitely a sensitive aspect of things. But I do think that a lot of the complicated things of of women having to call out men for a lot of things wouldn't really have to be if a lot of men were able to heal or move past or even generational healing, maybe my generation will be different, of men that are confident who they are and not artificial identity not identity based off of a football team but like real principles of of life and what they live by men that respect and love their women in all levels i think men that aren't addicted to sex you know men that really understand what that is and where that comes from i had an experience where before i was saved and and before i met God and became like Christ, I had a moment where I started to rely on sex. I started to rely on it because it helped release tension, tension of all these things I was facing in life. And women for years have given that part of themselves to men out of sheer love and devotion. And men have for years relied on it. And the problem is that women want to be respected and treasured. And when anything becomes an obsession, it becomes about the sex.
0: And then then it becomes an object. So I know exactly where you're going with a lot of this because we've talked about this quite a bit, right? I think we should save more of this perfect intro to the next round, right? Particularly with our timing now, I love that. Thank you for taking us there. Let's bring it back then to the parenting child human development moments before we move into those complicated conversations of relationship because we're surely going to get there. Yeah. It's exciting. It is, right? <laughs> so, I think maybe as we close up today's session, I'm curious to hear your opinions on I've been reading this book, just started diving this book on why do we snap? Right. And you know, kind of obviously we've talked a lot about the grief journey and I you know, we've talked, you know, as I'm on my Bars Closed podcast, I'm trying to go way beyond any kind of 12-step conversation, which I think is now becoming much more available to people and much more popularized, is that we do have to really acknowledge our own griefs, our own, you know, these own burdens of truth that have haunted us and and hurt us and then therefore allowed us to hurt others. And, you know, it's interesting, and I bring this into context because it just feels like it's in this framework of conversation, is why do we snap? And, and a lot of the the primary criteria of where we snap are based on our animalistic nature, right? And so don't try to steal my mate. Don't put my livelihood or my, my safety at risk, you know, food-wise or whatever. Like, there's a, a variety of checklists that are true for a bear as they are for a human. And so, like, don't threaten my young. I will thrash you. I will rage. I will protect. I will snap, you know, in a sense. I won't be this normal demeanored human being that I've kept in whatever containers. There are these times in life where one person might snap once or many times in life, right? So I ask you that because we talk about soul and we talk about body. What's your thoughts on us as animals versus us as souls?
1: Okay, so first I want to bring up one thing about the snapping first because you asked the question, you know, why do we snap? And I think that You know, the animalistic approach is assuming that the person normally is actually a dignified person and normally keeps things under control and normally have principles. Yeah, let's assume that. Now, most of the time where people are constantly snapping comes from more of a selfish standpoint. It comes from, I want attention. And attention comes from, I've been hurt. I want to be known and realized. So snapping to me in the more modern society standpoint and to the parenthood usually comes from, why are you being this way to me? I have done so much for you. I want to be recognized. I want to be understood. I don't want the fruit of my labors to constantly be taken and crushed. I want to be loved and appreciated for every time that I wake up in the day 40-something hours a week of work for you little shits. And that's how a lot of people feel. And a lot of those kids take on a lot of that energy, and then they them, themselves feel like little shits. And in actuality, it doesn't come from the kids. It's not about the kids. It has nothing to do with the kids. It is simply that selfishness, but also that kind of brokenness of why am I doing all this? Why am I working my hardest? Why am I... You know, putting everything that I have on the table for things to just repeatedly not go the way that I want it to go. For people to not love me at the way that I want them to love me. For my wife not to welcome me home with hugs and kisses and back massages. Like, hey, thanks, honey, for fighting in World War II. Thanks, honey, for killing thousands of people for the freedom of our country, you know? And war is not good. War is not good. But you have to acknowledge this brokenness of of this human nature of what is all this for? So where is my reward? Where is my recognition? Where is my peace? Where is my love? Why am I putting everything that I have on the table? And that's where you have broken people who snap or you have people who have God. People who know that there is a spiritual reality that there is a creator who is watching and listening and going, there's a purpose for this. Maybe you don't experience it on earth because maybe I have plans for you above the earth. Maybe I have treasures for you in heaven, if you will. And I say that because I believe in God. And I'm not trying to attach that that anybody has to, but I do think it's undeniable that there is a sense where people want to be recognized. People want to be appreciated.
0: Yeah, I think you brought that you know? really well around, right? You brought us right back into the pocket on that. Right. I'm almost like a guitar player who came out of the solo and got us right back into the rhythm section. Right. That was powerful.
1: Thank you. So that's my version of of why people snap and part of why people snap at their kids and I could really complicate it more and go deeper into it. I
0: think you spoke that very articulately. I'm going to leave
1: that as it is. So now there was one last point, which was your last question that we talked about. And I'm trying to, to recapture what it was. I don't know if you remember.
0: The animal versus soul. And I think that you were getting there with the fact that you, let's assume that there's the people who actually kind of don't snap all the time versus the people who are just living a life of being triggered and are always snapping, right? Right. And I think you addressed much of that, but That was that other question I remember. But we don't have to go there even, right? Because I do feel like I feel like you just really left us on a really killer final boom, <laughs> <laughs> You know what I mean? Yeah. So actually, why don't you just cap us off on this episode with anything that comes to mind?
1: Okay. We don't always have to politicize things and we don't always have to make things scientific. You kind of brought up snapping on this, this animal hormonal you know thing and i came in with what was my truth and some people are going to resonate with it because it makes sense so at the end of the day i think the trick is is being honest with ourselves being truthful with ourselves and coming from a place of love and dignity that allows us to not have to try and always write a book I feel like on on all the physical reasons that people snap, what's what's actually going on? Because in all love and respect to the to the doctors and the psychologists and all the people that are really trying to help people and and are really creating positive books, the reality is is there is not a blueprint. There is not a single blueprint for every single human being. There is a collective consciousness. There is a way that we feel each other's energies and we resonate with thoughts and things become mainstream. I mean, there's so much grouping with a lot of things. But as I said, like I'm skeptical of this whole denying ourselves and denying our spirituality and denying our experiences by trying to constantly make it about animal versus soul. We're both. We are both. We are animal and we are soul. So we have to find our own balances and realities and interpretations of our life in the middle. And as I said, if you continue to try and be the best you can be and you are working for love and for light and for goodness, no matter what you are going through, there is an end. And there is a better. And there is a reason. There is a purpose. So we have to kind of not make things so much about us that we interfere with the natural unfolding of things by having to cope with so much nonsense. There's so much layers and layers and layers and layers of made up stuff. And it is because we are creators. So we have created our reality for our own sanity. That's my last speak. I love it.
0: I love it. I think we'll leave it there today. People, thank you so much. Gibran, thank you. Appreciate you. Honor you. Admire you. Love you. Love you. Okay. Thanks, everyone. Ciao mix messages to mix messages mix messages to mix messages mix messages 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 messages